Thank you for tuning in to Highly Functional under the umbrella of Hardwater One. This is Dr. Brianne Shelman-Brown, the Functional Athletic Specialist. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. We are joined today with Mitch Babcock and Zachary Long. If you've been in the CrossFit community for very long, I'm sure you've heard of both of them. What we're going to dive into today is why accessory work and all this working on just movement pattern correction is so important into injury prevention um, for all level of athletes. Mitch and Zach, thank for joining. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Certainly. So let's dive in. Uh, you know, you guys are very um, out there with the education in a number of ways as far as how important this movement pattern correction is, how important accessory work is into preventing injuries and just getting proper training. Uh, so let's start with, um, you know, accessory work first on, in that direction. Just as a general, why do we need to do accessory work? Why isn't just us doing our normal, like, our CrossFit class a day enough? I think there's, there's two answers to that. Uh, number one, everybody who comes into CrossFit comes from a different background. So if somebody comes in and, you know, he's a former elite-level Olympic weightlifter and trying to get into CrossFit, what that individual needs to work on is going to be different than what somebody else does. And CrossFit as a whole, if you go into a gym, their programming is meant for the masses, not for individuals. So if you're trying to work at a competitive level or trying to be as well-balanced as possible like CrossFit preaches, some people are going to need to spend a little bit of time focusing on specific things to bring up their weak points. Then also, when you look at the development of different skills, let's take a muscle-up, for example where you're going to CrossFit class and, you know, once every other month muscle ups show up in your, your gym's CrossFit programming. Well, just having that showing up once every other month usually isn't enough for an athlete to get proficient in that movement. So if they're trying to make the jump from being able to do strict pull-ups and lots of kipping pull-ups to doing muscle ups, they're going to need to do some specific accessory work to kind of bridge the gap between those movements so that they're performing it with, with proper form and efficiency. Otherwise, we end up with a bunch of people who just kind of like flail around in the rings when they finally get over it right? and, and never really get to the point where they have good movement control of, of those higher level skills. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, to, to your other point as well, like Zach said, when, when people start CrossFit, you know, not all CrossFits are created equal. I think we're, we're super in tune with that as, as clinicians, as coaches. Um, that, that whatever gym you walk into, the programming can be entirely different from the other one. And they, and they both say CrossFit on the side, and it's, it's, it's almost like a completely di different universe. I think accessory work can be in the form of really good programming um, from a gym's behalf as far as not trying to cram in a strength and a mat content every single class. You see a lot of gyms now that um, that's the sexy thing that they think their members uh, just want to get as strong as fast as possible. And we're trying to drive performance as quick as we can, and we forget that these – like Zach said, they're everyday people. They come from very different backgrounds. They work uh, very demanding jobs. They have families. They have other responsibilities. And driving performance as fast as possible is not always what's optimal for them. And, and trying to cram in a five-by-five five back squat, quick put the bars away, get out your box, your jump rope, and your kettlebell, and we're going to start this 15-minute this triplet and three, two, one, go, there is no room at all for anything that looks like accessory work. It's just a strength piece and a Metcon. And uh, when you step back and you look at what good solid CrossFit programming looks like from my perspective, from a GPP based perspective, from a gym who's trying to make people healthier, happier, 
look better and feel better and not trying to drive a team to the games this year. Um, you know, we do one, we do one workout a day and then we have the other 40 to 45 minutes of that class setting the tone, the preparation for that one workout. And so if there's power snatches in that Metcon, we're going through the Bergner progression with a PVC pipe and then next with an empty barbell and those, you know, position one, position two, the high pull, the muscle snatch, all of those things can be seen as accessory work. You know, a really well-tailored warm-up can be seen as accessory work. When you put in single arm rows or um, inverted, you know, push-ups or things of that nature, when we start to integrate some of these components that they're not as sexy and they don't show up in Metcons all the time, but when we're really trying to get people moving better, when we can integrate them in the warm-up and the skill progression, um, they can blend themselves in and really send that client, that, that athlete out the door with a really well-rounded program for the day. They got their sweat, they got their workout, but they also integrated some accessory pieces. Um, and it's because that we didn't try to force too much on them in that hour. Yeah, I think that's, that method that you use at your gym is, I think, the, one of the better ways to go. We, under, we uh, went under new ownership at my box probably about, just about a year ago and really changed up the programming to that style uh you know same thing it's like we may do 20 to 30 minutes of warming up for that snatch before the actual metcon just to get hit your positions work on every single movement and i have noticed since then uh, just between you know obviously athletes are getting better but i'm also noticing less injuries with the athletes as well because of it I can't tell you how many athletes have come to our gym from maybe a, a, another CrossFit affiliate in the area that, that tries to program too much in, in that hour. And it's always a knee-jerk reaction of, ooh, I, I, liked, I liked doing the strength in that kind. I'd like that. I, you know, there was all these things. It's, it's, it's romantic to me. This is what I like. But after a few months, what they always come back and report is all of your members have so many skills. Like I've seen so many people climb ropes and do muscle ups and do handstand pushups. And my other gym, they never did that. And you know what? I'm noticing that my snatch feels better and I'm, I'm already tied my old PR and I feel confident I'm going to set a new PR soon. Things of that nature. And it's, it's getting away from what you think the athletes need and delivering on what you know as a, as a high level coach and clinician, what you know they need, which is more time working the skills, the fundamentals, the positions and the accessory pieces that really set the tone uh, for them to be successful in those high, um, high compound movements. Yeah, definitely. So if say someone's training at a gym that they do that strength component, that Metcon component, really squeezing everything in, what do you guys suggest as far as doing accessory work? Uh, you know, how often and how long should they spend on it? You know, a week. So if they're doing like a strength and a Metcon, yeah. In workouts. Um, I will still program it for some people, but you're going to have to be really cautious with how much you do there because it's going to be so easy to put them in a situation where they're then training beyond the, the, the level of volume that they can recover from. So it gets really tricky. And sometimes you have to have discussions with them on, you know, uh, so I had a discussion last week with a patient who had some significant quad atrophy in one of her legs versus the other and was dealing with telephomoral pain, I think as a result of that. So, She's in a gym that does very heavy strength and very heavy net cons combined. It's, they program like they're preparing people for regionals, essentially, in this gym uh, because they've sent people to games multiple times. Probably 12 different people have gone to the games at different levels. So we just had to have a conversation with her on if we're going to bring up this quad and add some accessory work into that, 
we got to find some place to take some volume out of your workout during the week at, at the gym that you're at. And so that meant for her that she cut out, you know, a met kind of week and she cut out one to two days of strength, depending on how that week's looking. But those are just long conversations you have to have with people, educate them and, and hopefully they bought into your system and will make some smart decisions based on your recommendations. I think it's hard, you know, it's really getting into education of those, of those clients, of those athletes, because it's hard, you know, they don't want to back down. They don't want to not go to and do the classes and, you know, do their normal training. So I think it is a lot of education, really getting them to buy into what you're telling them. Mm -hmm. The other, the other piece there is, is understanding that you're substituting uh, one piece for another in the short term in lieu of long-term gain, right? So mm -hmm. this is not to say that like forever you can't handle three days a week of extra strength work. This is, is for the next six to eight weeks, we need to prioritize something over another and bring up that unilateral pressing weakness or that unilateral quad weakness. Um, and that's going to be our focus. And we're going in a little, you know, a little micro cycle focusing on that. And then when we come out, we're going to reevaluate some things and then maybe reshuffle around your training cycle. And um, where that can, if, if you don't really convey that message well, it just feels like you're stealing something from the athlete. You're right. taking away, you're taking away a training day. You're taking away a strength day. And what Zach's trying to say, and what we're trying to say is like, no, no, no. Like this, like I know you don't see, uh, you know, unilateral strength pressing as being a priority for you as much as you do your jerk or your snatch. But in, if we don't address this, your jerk and your snatch is going nowhere, and you may run into more problems down the road. So. Uh, just understanding how we how we convey that, how we essentially sell that to the athlete uh, to get them to buy in. Yeah, and I, you know, I like to term this as far as the like unsexy side of CrossFit. It's all those things that's like you don't you don't see the elite level athletes putting on you know their social media and posting this sort of thing, and so uh, you know it's it can be tough to get the buy-in sometimes, but I think the more coaches and clinicians are out there kind of educating people on things. I think the more it's getting a little bit more willing to be done, I guess is probably the better terminology. Yeah. It's trying to figure out how to make it cool before people are broken, right? People want to shed a lot of light on it. Once they, once they're completely broken in the dumps and they can't trade them more, then you start seeing some of these higher profile folks starting to share like, uh, you know, sled drags or, or sandbag carries, or, right? Then you start seeing it showing up. Like, I'm on the mend. I'm on the comeback. Um, very rarely do you see people, uh, you know, glorifying or putting in the praise for doing that when they're still healthy or when they're, you know, at the top of their game, you know? It'd be different if you saw Matt Frazier or, you know, Katrin Davis' daughter or, you know, some of these high-profile athletes um, showing you some unilateral work, showing them an accessory imam that they did at the end of their training or their warm-up routine, um, on the crossover symmetry system, you know, things of that, that nature, um, when we see them before they're broken, before they're beat down, because in a lot of people's minds, that's, that's just the stuff you do when you can't do the other things, right? So trying to shed that light and kind of change the uh, narrative around that. Um, I think it's been cool to see, um, you know, the, the awareness around like crossover symmetry that Mitch mentioned has got a lot more gyms doing a little bit of accessory programs specific to shoulder prehab stuff. Um, and that's been cool to see them being able to, to breach into the market with some pretty intelligent uh, accessory work. 
And I really look forward to seeing that more with like lower body and, and midline stabilization stuff as well. Cause the shoulders seem to be like the big hot topic, which if you look at the injury rates in CrossFit, that's probably where more of this accessory work needs to be programmed anyway. Um, but then I think people also need to take it to, um, you know, like I said, the lower extremity midline stabilization and just the core positions that make up the movements that they're going to do. So if you're doing muscle ups and keeping pull ups, I'm always shocked at, I was with a CrossFit Games athlete yesterday, a Masters athlete. Dude could not hold a hollow body position hanging from a rig. And I'm like, so why do you think your shoulder's been bugging you and you had to have this procedure done to your shoulder? Because you're generating all the force from your hip, from your hips, and your shoulders are just uh, taking the brunt of the force as you're trying to do this hip-generated kip. And so, you know, his accessory programming is getting on the floor and working on his hollow body positioning again. And so often going back to those basic movements and spending time on them, is is really necessary and you'll see that in a lot of other sports like you'll see um, gymnasts still working on these foundational skills nonstop. you'll see olympic lifters hitting you know pvc pipe work as part of their warm-ups and so i think crossfitters need to also remember that some of these higher level components need to be broken down into the specific movements that would make make it up you can still make a hollow body hard for every single athlete there is out there using some progression of a hollow body that will translate to improved performance in their gymnastics movements Oh, for sure. I did a pull-up seminar probably about a month ago now, and I think every single person when I just started with hollow body and Superman, <clears throat> excuse me, positions, all of them are like, I've never felt this position before. <laughs> so it's just like getting that awareness in them of where their body is supposed to be because, yeah, most people don't haven't figured it out yet regardless it's of how long they've been training. It's insane how far off people are in their hollow body positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I've, I've been in gyms where they like regularly program hollow body positions and then seeing their athletes come in and ask them to show a hollow body and their back's completely flat and it's just a arm slightly raised off the ground, legs slightly raised off the ground. And I'm like, yeah, that's not even close to a hollow. <laughs> and you try to put them in like a hollow tuck with their arms overhead and they can't hold it for 10 seconds yet. They've been holding these minute long hollow body positions in their gym every week. It's hilarious. Yeah. Although I'm not sure I'm the one that should be uh, talking about hollow body being that we know my issues. <laughs> well, I mean, that's something <laughs> important too. I mean, you have these long-term adaptations that allowed you to perform your sport when you were younger at a better level. And so everybody has these movement faults. It's can you appropriately train around it? If you look at me and standing, I'm, I'm incredibly lordotic as well. Um, and if you actually look at me when I do any sort of, uh, back extension beyond my neutral, you'll see that I really, really hinge at the TL junction. And that's, that's the way I have been since I was a baby and there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to change it. I've got good thoracic spine mobility. I've got, um, I've just got that movement fault. And so, you know, I know what it is and I'm smart enough to know now, like when I do split jerks, when I do heavy push presses, I've got to be a little bit more aware of my midline stabilization with those movements than I am with something like um, a back squat or a front squat. And you have the same thing yourself with your um, tight hips. You just know that there are certain things that you're going to have to be a little smarter with in your training and you might have to go a little bit slower. And that workout might not be the 10 out of 10 ass kicker that we're all, oh crap, I just cussed on the podcast. (laughs) We're good, we're good. (laughs) Might not be the killer workout, um, you know, that you got the day before because you're working more on controlling positions in that Metcon. Yeah. And I think you made a really good point. Like it's, we need to be aware of 
what our bodies can and can't do on a structural level in order to really know what areas we need to focus on. Cause like you said, for you, if you don't have that midline stabilization, you know, you know where your deficits are going to be for me because of how tight my hips are. I know where I need to keep more stable and where I keep need to keep looser and really being aware of that I think is important. And I don't think most athletes have that awareness. No, they don't. Um, but fortunately, there's a lot of people putting out some really good information that's going to help athletes make more important decisions. And then we got, you know, a, just an enormous growth in clinicians who are starting to understand this stuff. People like yourself that, that can give great education to the athletes that are in front of them so that they can make those better decisions. That's been awesome to see because uh, how long have you been a PT? Uh, almost 12 years. Yeah. So you and I being a little older than Mitch have just seen some really horrible PT. That <laughs> don't, don't, so I'm, I'm going after this talk to go talk at a, at a physical therapy clinic about squat mechanics. And um, there's going to be a slide in there where we show somebody doing a mini squat talking about, you know, this is the standard physical therapist view of what a squat is. And then the picture next to it is, I think it's like Katrin David's daughter doing a uh, butt to the ground squat, essentially. Um, I didn't cuss that down. And uh, it, it's, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen and the, the reactions I get from these people. Cause I know that this clinic itself is, is a more old school clinic. So it's going to be interesting to see, but it's been really cool to see how many clinicians are starting to get a good understanding of these things. Yeah. It's, it's definitely been a change through the years of, in the profession, as far as, you know, we all I'm sure, you know, started with the basic exercises that we just look at now is like, what was I thinking? So Mitch, being a newer therapist than Zach and I, um, kind of how have you seen things progress? Or maybe you haven't seen a ton of progressions because you came out more in the functional aspect. Yeah, I, I, too, you need to understand kind of like where I operate too. So I, I don't work in a, in a conventional physical therapy clinic like most uh, therapists come out and start. So I started my own practice right out of school inside of a CrossFit gym. So that's been my 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 world ever since I came out of school. So my perspective is a little different. However, I am, uh, you know, levied to be able to travel and to meet with a lot of therapists who do work in these conventional clinics. And what you see now is the, is the newest trend of clinics finally getting on board that, Hey, maybe we need a barbell in our clinic, right? Maybe we need some way to load people heavier than a 10 pound ankle weight that I strap around someone's legs. Um, and so now you're getting clinics that are buying kettlebells and buying barbells. And my concern is that, they're just getting them as like, you know, to keep up with the Joneses, right? Like, Oh, that's what every clinic's getting now. So our clinic needs to buy a barbell and yet their clinicians still have no idea how to utilize this tool. It would be like buying the latest and greatest, um, e-stim recovery device. And it just sits there and collects dust because you think that's just what you're supposed to do. And, in, and instead what we need to understand is basic movement patterns under load. How, what, what are the best positions to be able to load somebody and get them stronger get them more robust over time. And so what clinicians really need rather than buying all the fancy um, tools, accessories, the deadlift, you know, this and that, the hex bars, the, the bumper plates, their clinicians really need to understand how to move. They need to, they need to understand how athletes train, um, how to best move load in a squat, how to best move load in a deadlift and how to best press weight. Um, and then from there, you can utilize a lot of different tools. You can use your kettlebells or your barbells, you, you know, the other fancy stuff that you want to pick up, but you have the understanding um, to be able to develop from there. So that's really where I'm 
most excited about going more than more than seeing these clinics pick up the, the latest and greatest strength tool and claiming themselves as you know bridging the gap uh which i use in air quotes because i just am nauseated by that um i, I would rather see clinicians uh figure out what a sound deadlift looks like yeah i agree i think Especially the general outpatient clinics, they are so focused on the great latest, greatest technology and forget about just the basics of movement patterns and movement. And that's essentially what we're trying to retrain. Well, retrain and also get the education in the first place. And um, I, what, I, what I hear now most um, from maybe this newer wave of clinicians who are coming out is a lot of confusion after graduating school that we didn't get what we thought we were going to get in grad school. We thought we were going to go to school and analyze the squat. And what we got was analyzing gait for half a semester and then a whole lot of classes that we never utilized again. And we're, we're a little kind of duped or a little confused as to like, hey, when, when does that deadlift lecture that Zach Long gave ever come into play? Like when, when do I ever understand squat mechanics and when do I under, ever understand like what the best position to press overhead is? And, and we simply just don't get it. And so that's kind of, I, I don't want to say my generation, but the, you know, the folks that I interact with the most that are kind of coming out of school late that understand a little bit more about functional movements and, and loaded movements. Uh, it's just kind of a gap. It's, it's just so empty right now. And it's leaving a lot of folks, um, confused into having to seek the information on their own. So what I took from that though, that I think is cool is me graduating a few years before you, I didn't come out of school and my classmates didn't come out of school thinking that we had that gap. We didn't even know that we didn't know the squat near as well as we should. So to me to, to hear somebody that's just three years, three years younger than I am say, we know that we have this deficit is like a huge step forward because it was not there when, when Brianne and I were in school. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, I was as hungry as any student out there reading all the research articles I could get my hands on, but I didn't know that even with my strength and conditioning background that I didn't have a good enough in-depth knowledge of squat mechanics. So that's a big step forward. It really is. I, uh, I, I network with a lot of student physical therapists now and just seeing what they understand and know now when it comes to, you know, what education they're getting and what education they're seeking out on their own regarding this whole concept is just phenomenal because like I it wasn't there when I was in school talking about movement patterns on the clinical side we know there's issues with people's deadlift we know there's issues with people's squats uh, you know as a clinician we typically you know, kind of, or as a coach, essentially, we essentially triage someone's movement patterns. Where, I guess, where is your, where do you tend to focus if I, if there is a focus uh, as far as, like, when we're looking at the squat, are you, we need to be looking at, you know, all mechanics to keep that torso upright and keep that good position all the way as, sorry, but to the ground. <laughs> Darn it, you started it. Um, so kind of where, like, as you're triaging this, as you're looking at movement patterns, do you have one area that you tend to focus on? Do you, are there trends that you tend to see with your athletes? 
We, uh, you know, so Zach and I, obviously, we teach for the Institute of Clinical Excellence, and, and we teach in the clinical, uh, the clinical management of fitness athlete. And through our courses, we, we, we lay out the points of performance that we want to see as clinicians, what we deem to be necessary, you know, taking that squat, for example, uh, what are the key points of performance that we need to maintain, and, and how that clinician goes about make, making sure that athlete is, is checking that, those boxes is kind of a, um, an individualized, contextual type position but we do we do emphasize kind of like here, here's my preference right and Zach has a preference uh, with his clinical pattern recognition and I have a, pres uh, a preference of going through those steps with mine as well and so what I like to see is is I'm starting at the midline I'm, I'm, I'm starting at the lumbo pelvic relationship right for that squat from the time that we're set up I want to know that they're starting in a brace neutral position that they dynamic throughout the movement that it maintains a brace neutral spine position and they also finish back there again um, I prioritize that. I want to see that first and foremost. Uh, so my eyes are at the lumbo-pelvic relationship, and then I kind of go from there. I'm looking at the feet, the ankle, uh, knee position, upper thoracic position as I kind of work my way out from the midline. Um, from a screening standpoint, if I'm looking at the squat, what I can say most often is that I'll try to I'll try to rule out ankle restrictions quickly and early and often. Right? If I can take that off the table, um, because it does cause so many issues up and down the chain. Um, with the squat and with a lot of other movements as well, I want to I want to make sure I can knock that out first and foremost. If there's not a true ankle mobility limitation there, and it's motor control in nature, then, then we're on a, a completely different path. If there is, then we're understanding a limitation and we're starting to work from there. So that's kind of my preference. And again, you know, Zach may have a different sequence and order of which he and he can speak to that if that's the case. But I think the commonality there is that you know here's our points of performance that we agree on that we want to see maintained for that athlete to squat successfully, to squat heavyweight, to do it over the long term. And we want to make sure that that athlete's checking those boxes. I agree. So it's, I tend to look from the bottom up, but that doesn't matter. Mitch and I have, have these set points of performance that we want to look for in a squat. And if we see somebody squat and they don't pass those points of performance, then we're going to go through figuring out why they don't pass those points of performance. And something that we're both big on is this coach first mentality. So as physical therapists, we always want to stop and, and start doing some talocrural mobs on somebody or start doing some lateral band distraction, mobilization with movements. And really we miss the boat a lot of times on the changes we can make really rapidly with somebody when we just coach them first. So a lot of times I'll see an athlete come in and, and you, I watch them squat and I pretty much know that they've got a, a junky ankle that's going to need some mobility, but they're dealing with knee pain. And you know what? This is an athlete that, that wants to be squatting, wants to be squatting as soon as possible. So before I even break that ankle out or break everything else out, I'm going to spend some time saying, look, what happens if we turn your toes out a little bit more? What happens if you uh, sit your hips back more or, you know, go through a couple different cues, verbal, tactile, whatever, and see if I can quickly modify their symptoms with that. Because if I can do that, we can get some really good buy-in if we get those quick changes just by making small modifications in their technique. And then we say, all right, now let's break everything out. Now let's look at your ankle motion. Let's come up with what the long-term plan for your ankle mobility is going to be that's then going to give you more options with your squat. But a lot of times as physical therapists, we want to skip that coaching part. And so then I've got somebody coming to me with patellofemoral pain. I'm like, all right, we got to work on your ankle mobility. And until your ankle mobility gets better, you're going to be in knee pain. And it's probably going to take us four to six weeks to get your knee pain better. And that kind of sucks to hear as an athlete. But if we had spent 30 seconds to a minute just trying to coach that pattern and make tiny changes in how they performed it to modify those symptoms, maybe we can get them squatting with, with maybe um, 
maybe it's not perfect technique or maybe it's not their most ideal strategy long-term, but I can get them squatting without as much pain. I can get them doing the movements that they want to be doing and that they love doing better just by taking that time to coach through something, then break it out. And then after you break it out, use that to kind of confirm your hypothesis based on what you saw in their movement thoughts. Yeah, that's perfect. Because uh, we all want to get keep our athletes training rather than pulling them from the gym or keeping, you know, modifying every single movement that they're doing that's lower extremity, for instance. And, and yeah, as clinicians, we get so caught up in the just correcting that problem that's causing the pain or that driver of the pain. And a lot of clinicians forget that they're still an athlete and they still want to be training. And we need to figure out how to merge those two sides together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to address the mobility aspect for a second. Uh, we, as coaches, as clinicians, you know, we know the importance of mobility. We try to educate uh, our athletes on the importance of mobility, but I think what's overlooked by a lot of people is, okay, we get this stuff moving, but then they don't, continue that process of that loading of retraining that movement pattern and loading it. So I want to dive into that a little bit, um, that whole process of working the mobility aspect and then using that motion and loading that motion. All right. Um, definitely something that, that Mitch and I see a lot of. Um, so let's take uh, an example of somebody's squat and they squat it's, it's a crossfitter. So they need to be able to do an overhead squat but they grew up as uh, you know, a football player. They had tight ankles Their coach in football was always telling them, you know, sit your hips back, sit your hips back. Don't let your knees go in front of your toes. And so when they squat, they have this really forward lean in their torso. And then they're trying to overhead squat in that position, which just puts their shoulder in a really junky position to, to optimally transfer force. And so we identify, look, the, the reason they're not squatting with the form we'd want to see with an overhead squat is because they're, they don't have enough ankle dorsiflexion. And we go and we do some tylo curl moves. We teach them some stretching for that. But like you said, so often just opening up that range of motion is not going to change their movement pattern. So then we got to figure out what are those things that are going to bridge the gap between where they have moved and where they now have the potential to move and use different things like do a goblet squat where they squat down to the bottom and, and rest their uh, forearms on their knees and use the weight of that kettlebell to pull their knees forward so they get more comfortable in that knees forward squat than they've ever been or, or throw a band behind their hips and have them squat down and that band's really pulling them forward and pulling their knees out far in front of their toes just to start getting them more comfortable with that. Um, or, you know, when it comes to their front squats, positioning them in front of a wall, making them clean the weight up, stand close to a wall in a position where if they drop their torso forward, they're going to push that weight into the wall. Um, be careful what type of wall you do that on so you don't bust through drywall. <laughs> But um, yeah, just different tricks like that to, to help people be able to transfer those mobility changes you make into improvements in their movement pattern to better match their goals. Have we that much? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, without question. And I think the, the, the easiest, most overlooked answer as well is just priming that movement pattern more right just and this is something that I skip over a bunch but like just empty bar work right go through go through your three or four mobility uh, things that help maybe open up your hips or help open up your ankles and then get the freaking bar out and start squatting with it right 
go through a bunch of air squats, 30, 40, 50 air squats, trying to get that, get groom that pattern that you're looking for. Grab your empty bar and start with some light load and do another 10, 20 air squats or, or empty bar squats and just grooming out that pattern a bunch. Um, what we want to do, right? What ego tells you you want to do is get the bar out and immediately throw 135 on it or 95, right? And immediately start moving it and, and kind of jumping into, um, into too much load too quick, right? So use your tools, use your interventions, use your, use your accessory stuff to open up what you need to open up or get yourself into a better position and then drill it a bunch because it's, it's, it's muscle memory. It's, you don't go out and shoot the perfect free throw on your first attempt. You have to, you have to drill that shot over and over and over again. And it's common with our movement patterns as well. Very conscious effort. Um, you know, that 10,000 hour rule, that's not just like mindless 10,000 hours. That's 10,000 focused, coached, uh, corrected hours uh, of attentive repetitions. And that's what we really need with our movements as well is, is for athletes to be a little bit more conscious, a little bit more attentive of their movements if they want to create long-term sustainable change. And I think the other thing too to point out with that is the repetition is the biggest component there, you know, with that lightweight, with that empty barbell. Because I know for me and a lot of my athletes that the mobility is better. They can do, you know, an overhead squat, perfect form, good control. You put them under quick movement into a squat snatch and they're all over the place. They for, their bodies have forgotten under that speed where it's supposed to be. And I, I think the more that we just retrain those patterns in a slow controlled manner, the more the body is going to learn where it's supposed to be with when we add that speed to it or when we're cycling that barbell and uh, you know, we, our habits tend to take over rather than what our bodies know we should be moving in. Just any final thoughts on, you know, things that we've covered, things we haven't covered yet um, that you feel is super, is really important, whether it be accessory work, stability, midline control, movement pattern retraining, um, any like key points for you to, that you want to finish off with? I think you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned discussing scaling um, in your messages beforehand. And oh, I think that's, something yeah. that's incredibly important to have a, have a talk about um, just because like we've talked about with so many things when you're talking about accessory programming that that can be used to, to unlock your ceiling on your long-term potential. Proper scaling is the same thing. So uh, properly taking the time to, um, you know, not overload yourself with tons of kipping pull-ups and spending time working on band assisted pull-ups and hitting proper positions with that rather than just using weird body momentum flailing movements is going to be what long-term will lead to the best development. And, um, you know, the same can be said for like the Olympic lifts. So often athletes or, or coaches get people lifting from the floor when honestly there are a lot of people that could just use spending a couple months working just from the high hang position every single time the snatch comes up so that they really dial down that triple extension component before they start moving the bar further down. So I think having long discussions with coaches for any athletes that are listening on where they should be scaling wise is going to long-term allow them to develop more. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up is, is so much of our conversations at the gym is, you know, there's no shame in your scale game, you know, like just, you've got to scale this workout for what you can do right now to get yourself the best workout today. That's going to set the stage for your workout tomorrow. And I think we can get caught up in the short term, I want to RX this workout, 
when this workout doesn't matter in the, in the grand scheme of what does next year's training look like for you, um, we're always trying to harp on longevity for our athletes, setting the stage for really good, successful training for a long time. Um, so if that means like, hey, today, you know, I know you could power clean 135, but I would rather you do 115 and work on trying to finish your hip extension and not reverse curl this thing with your arms, right? And so even though that's, that might feel like an ego shot at the time, you give that athlete something to focus on for the day and then follow up with them at the end of that workout. Hey, did, did you focus on what I wanted you to focus on today? Did we get better today? We're going to be better next time 135 comes around. And it takes, you know, it takes development as a person. It takes development as an athlete to be comfortable in those scenarios of a coach looking at you and saying, I know you could do it. I don't want you to do it today. I want you to do something else instead. And that's um, what I try to harp on is a lot in our gym. The other thing too is just examining uh, bases, base levels of strength, right? And, and Zach and I talk a lot about the deadlift and its, uh, its role in rehab is, is not causative of back pain, but instead how we should be utilizing the deadlift and rehab to resolve back pain. Zach did a phenomenal lecture the other night with our virtual uh, ICE group uh, through the Institute of Clinical Excellence, did an online lecture for those, um, the members of that group. And, you know, one piece of literature that we cite often is, you know, taking this study that took a low load group and compared them to the deadlift high load group. And then they followed it up and they pulled out that high load group, the group that they used deadlifts with, and they said, which people did really well with the deadlift. And it was the people who had more strength in their low back. They had increased low back endurance. They had a lower pain reported scale, um, lower functional deficits, uh, but they had a base level of strength and endurance in their, in their back that made them able to tolerate deadlifts a little bit better. And, and, and the idea, the concept there is like, hey, while these movements um, you know, are cool, it's cool to have a barbell and to be able to load it heavy, we need to make sure that the athlete possesses the base levels of strength necessary to take that step. And like Zach mentioned, the goblet squat, you know, like single arm pressing, a lot of these things are the stair step to then the greater thing, which is the loaded back squat or the, the, the conventional barbell deadlift, et cetera. So um, I think that's really good information for clinicians to take of like, you know, I'm sitting in the clinic, I'm listening to this podcast, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and I want to start integrating these deadlifts. So have ways of assessing strength, have ways of assessing uh, functional capacity of whether or not you feel that individual is ready to start, you know, the deadlift or the squat or the press. Um, and if not, you've got a couple things in your arsenal to kind of get them there. And if they are ready, then you understand sound programming uh, to, to kind of carry them further from there. Awesome. And I want to give, uh, or I want to kind of go back to something you had said that uh, made me, think the way I had a conversation with someone else recently um, about it and it's really the way our gym programs as well that it's like workouts have like a time cap on them or like today it was intervals but they wanted them he wanted them to be done in like less than two minutes so it was like scale your weight accordingly so you're done in that two minutes or figure out like a weight that you can do 15 reps every round unbroken. And so you don't, we don't have these athletes anymore who just want to click that RX. Like they're, as we've developed with this new owner, it's really getting the understanding of the, the intention of the workout, maintaining that intensity with the appropriate scaling. And uh, 
and I think when you go into it with that mindset of like, I have to get this many rounds because that's the intention of the workout. I think it's a lot mentally, uh, easier for a person to be willing to scale down. Yeah. I really like when gyms do that. I know Mitch is big on that, but it, it lets athletes understand that scaling down the weight or the skill still lets them accomplish what that day's workout is. Mm-hmm. Meeting the intended stimulus of the day. And I've got so many athletes now that that's made it more comfortable for them to scale. Um, when you give them those time domains of like, Hey, you know, here's this big long chipper with, you know, gymnastic and, and, and weightlifting components involved in it. But like, you should be finishing part one in about two minutes time. And when the clock says six minutes, you should be finishing part two or three of this workout. And so they know in their mind, like, that's either helping them scale the weight, scale the reps, or both, so that they come in right around when everyone else is coming in, and they feel like they accomplished which, what was the stimulus. And, and that's on the coach and the gym to be able to be able to portray that really well of like, hey, you know, we just did um, a hero wide chief this week. And if you've never done chief before, it's five intervals or five rounds of three minute intervals with a one minute rest. It's three, six, nine. So it's power clean, push up, air squat. And the idea behind that is that the power clean weight is fast. It's boom, boom, boom. And then you're on the ground, six push ups, nine air squats. And it's supposed to be a quick turnaround. But the power clean weight is 135.95. And so I've got half of my gym going, well, I can power clean 135, but it's not going to move very fast. And so once I tell them the intended stimulus today is very quick intervals, very quick power cleans, cycle them quickly and drop the bar and move, then they go, okay, I understand. That's my goal for today. I want to move a lot of rounds here. I'm probably going to go 115, 95, et cetera. They'll, They'll figure out a weight accordingly. So, you know, I, I emphasize a lot of clinicians you know, part of this, this partnership, part of driving performance is, is partnering with a really good box in your community that you can trust um, that the programming is done well and the coaching is imparted really well. And um, so that's, that's a whole nother podcast all of its own. Uh, but I, I would encourage clinicians to, and what I always tell folks in our cohorts is go experience a lot of gyms, go be a member, go do a free trial, um, go pay for a month, um, et cetera, and go, go see what's in your area and what, what, type of coaching there is, uh, you know, offered in your, in your area and then make an assessment on, on where you're going to kind of partner up or, or share your information and try to drive performance from there. Perfect. Well, awesome guys. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, if people want to look you up, um, where can they find you? And then I also want you to just talk about this Institute of Clinical Excellence a little bit, cause that is an amazing place to get some education. All right. You can find me at uh, thebarbellphysio.com or the Barbell Physio on social media. And I am at Dr. Mitch DPT on Instagram, where it's just mostly videos of me lifting weights. Um, and I have occasional few informational posts that, <laughs> might, that might help you out. Not nearly the content that Zach puts out. Um, I'm the head coach, manager, operator of CrossFit 2A Bore West, which is in Fenton, Michigan. Uh, where, where I run my clinical practice um, and, and try to get people out of here and fitter here. Um, on behalf of the Institute of Clinical Excellence, um, that, is, um, that is something both Zach and I are you know, incredibly honored to be a part of. It's started by Dr. Jeff Moore, um, EIM fellow and very distinguished clinician around the country and around the world for that matter. Um, started the company to basically provide um, clinicians, outpatient orthopedic clinicians, 
all the tools necessary to be really successful in the modern uh, healthcare environment of, of the people that are coming in, give them the best current evidence on spine care, on pain management, on functional movements, capacities, on you know the, the rehab of the performance dancer or the, the triathlete, the runner, the biker, like all the tools that you may need to be successful in the clinic and really drive um, high performance outcomes. And, um, and to get back to loving your job as a clinician, which is just making people feel better. And when the outcomes are good, you, you begin to love your job a little bit more. You'd be surprised. So uh, we're beyond excited to be able to provide information to clinicians who understand the, the gap, who understand the need uh, to understand these functional movements a little bit more in whatever degree they may need it. They may need just an eight-week online course to introduce them to the fundamentals. They may have a passion to make this their new side hustle and to become that coach-clinician hybrid, and they may want to dive into the advanced concepts course that Zach has developed and organized, um, and they may want hands-on, in-person, uh, live experience, and that's what we've built out with our live seminar course. So all the offerings that we can provide to clinicians who are excited about driving outcomes for their patients, because that's what it's all about. Awesome. Thank you so much for that information. So Zach, Mitch, one more time, thank you so much for joining us here today. And uh, maybe we'll get you here on another time to talk more CrossFit. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find show notes at highlyfunctional.org, which has links to my website and my social media profiles, all containing more information to help you become highly functional. Until next time, go live and be highly functional.